Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. We've been going through the book of Mark. And last week, Pastor Phil had us look at chapter 3, and in this amazingly systematic fashion, Pastor Phil profoundly pulled out five people groups that encountered Christ and their five responses. Remember that? Um, And today, I want us to look at another person and their response to Christ. And then next week, Pastor Phil will dive deep into how we should respond. Because remember, the first part of Mark's gospel is asking this question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? And over the past few weeks, we have witnessed uh, that this sort of uh, collusion, this, this, this bombardment, this, this accident, this collide of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Today, in the passage that we're looking at, theologian Paul Tripp puts it this way, that we will witness uh, the, the, the combination of the kingdom of God coming into the kingdom of self. And Mark is going to talk about the tragedy of Herod and John the Baptist. Just to set it up, John the Baptist was one of the greatest figures uh, in history when it comes to the Old Testament covenant, according to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said of John in Luke chapter 7 that there, are, uh, that there is nobody born of men or women that is greater than John. He was the one that baptized Jesus. And John baptizing people was actually somewhat controversial. Not because baptism was never heard of then, but in fact it was. People were baptized all the time. But then how you were baptized was you were baptized, you baptized yourself. You would baptize your own self. And John comes along and says, no, 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 you don't baptize yourself, but someone baptizes you. In other words, you cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself righteous. But what the gospel is about is that it's not a salvation by works or by merits or or, or, or earned. or you, You're not pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps, if you will. And so the whole picture of John baptizing someone itself was 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 revolutionary in their idea and so here is John and he is he is this figure in history in fact Hebrews 11 tells us that he is sort of uh, uh, epitomized of all of the Old Testament saints because he stood at the threshold of the new order of things without actually entering into it Uh, He is great importance really lies in the fact that he bridged the old era and the new era. And he was the link between the two. And in other words, he had one foot in the age of promise and one foot in the age of fulfillment. And he is the transitional key between the old covenant and the new. And as this transitional figure, he bears testimony to who Jesus Christ. Christ is and confirms Jesus's identity. But this historical narrative that we are about to read uh, brings something to the forefront that we don't expect. 
And that's why today's sermon message title is The Unexpected Tragedy. We are in the middle of a series called The Unexpected King, and today's sermon title is The Unexpected Tragedy. So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 6, and we are going to read starting in verse 14. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. It'll be on the screen. And it reads like this, King Herod heard about this, uh, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that's why uh, this miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the other prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard of this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Let me just pause quickly by saying that this is because John had been beheaded. And now Mark is about to go into the story of how John was beheaded. But what you will recognize is, is that one of Herod's errors was that he focused on the wrong thing and he missed Jesus for John. Verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodus, his brother's Philip's wife, whom he married. In other words, he married his niece. For John had been saying to Herod, it is unlawful for you to have married your brother's wife. So Herod nursed a uh, Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod would hear John, check this out, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for some high officials and military commanders and the leaders of men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out to her mother and said, what should I ask for? She said, the head of John the Baptist. At once the girl hurried to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executor with orders to bring John's head. The men went and beheaded John in prison brought back his head on a platter, presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reading of this word, and I pray now, Lord, that as we begin to unfold this passage, Lord God, that you will give us ears to hear, Heavenly Father, that we will have a deep desire and a stirring, Lord God, to be attentive, Lord God, but then also, Heavenly Father, to take this word and apply it, Lord Jesus, that it won't be something that we just say amen to or, or write a few notes about, Lord God, but that we will take it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and digest it and make it applicable to our lives. And Heavenly Father, that as we desire to be disciples for you, Lord God, that you will help us through this. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen and amen. Uh, reading a passage like this, especially in the Bay Area, causes our culture to sort of cringe, especially the skeptic or the atheist who would be quick to make statements like, well, what sort of loving God would allow this? Or God should have saved John from such a gruesome and violent death. Uh, and what's funny is when the atheist makes these types of claims, they are actually self-defeating. Because in an atheistic worldview, there are no moral absolutes. And, and this does not mean that atheists cannot be good. Uh, in fact, there are more atheists that are probably good, uh, good people, loving and caring. They do nice things. Uh, but what it does mean is they have no ground for why one should be good. So their worldview cannot support absolute morality, and yet they cannot seem to escape it. Pain and loss, suffering is all part of, wake, of what makes us relational beings. It, 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 in a sense, is what part, in part, it makes us human. It causes us to understand that we are not just mechanical androids, if you will, but that we are organic and that we are real. That we are real. Just touch your neighbor real quick. Make sure they real. They real, right? They real. Yeah, you're there. They real. Mm -hmm. I said touch. Don't hit. Woo, some of y'all getting your, your anger out from this morning. Praise Jesus. Oh, pow. <laughs> real. What does it mean to be real? I was really blessed growing up because um, I got to, uh, for all of my childhood, uh, up into my young adult age, I got to be around my great-grandmother on my mom's side and my grandparents on my dad's side. And even when my dad passed away and my sister and I were separated and put into foster care, even through that whole process of being in foster care all the way up until I went to university, uh, I was still able to have relationships with both of my grandparents and, and my great-grandmother. And my grandma on my dad's side is from Northeast, they're from Connecticut, and my great-grandmother on my mom's side is from down south. And Southerners, in fact, Becca makes fun of me because sometimes she'll hear this little, she calls it this little country twang come out of my voice. I don't even recognize it, but so sometimes it's just there. But, but Southern grandmas have a way of talking that's a little bit different, right? And they have certain sayings that, that sometimes you have to translate. Like, if I ever brought a girlfriend home, my great-grandmother would say, mm-mm, that's a snake in the grass. That's a snake in the grass. And it didn't matter who she was. She could have been the most perfect angel. But every person that I ever brought home, my grandma would look at her and be like, mm-mm, Roger, let me talk to you. That's a snake in the grass. And it just meant that that has somebody that's, you know, has bad character, right? Or she'd say something like, the turtle didn't get on the fence post by himself. In other words, if my sister did something and she knew I had a part of it, she'd come up and say, listen, the turtle didn't get on the fence post by itself, right? 
Or she'd say, well, the possum's on the stump. And that just meant, well, it can't get any better than this. Or she'd say things like, this is a really popular one, well, bless your heart. Now, let me tell you something about bless your heart. Bless your heart is tricky because depending on how you're saying it will depend on what it means. For instance, if I were to bake my cookie, my, my grandma some cookies and bring them, she'd be like, oh, bless your heart. I love it. Yes. Praise the Lord. You know, and that just meant, you know, bless your heart. Like you're doing good. You're grateful. That Thank you so much. You're awesome. You know, bless your heart. But, but see, there's a difference when she would say something like, let's just say somebody would bring her a gift and she'd open it up and it wasn't what she's expecting. She'd be like, oh, what is this? I've never seen this before. Yes, bless your heart. <laughs> right? Or maybe we'd be at a potluck or something and, and, and here comes Sister Watermelon walks through the door and she'd be like, oh, she's wearing that same dress. Bless her heart. Bless your heart's tricky. It just, it just kind of depended. If she's busy, she'd say something like, well, I'm busier than a one-legged cat in a sandbox. I mean, they just say these sayings that sometimes, you know, takes, takes sort of interpretation. Uh, and, but, I, but I loved my great-grandmother and my grandmother. And, and my grandmother on my, on my dad's side, what she would do is she would read us stories. She'd read us stories. In fact, my love of reading comes from that. And one story that I still remember to this day that she would read to us is The Velveteen Rabbit. Any remember that story? The Velveteen Rabbit. It's a story about a little stuffed bunny um, that is trying to figure out what life is all about. And there's a conversation that this rabbit has one day with a skin horse. And this is how the conversation goes. What is real? asked the rabbit to the skin horse. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and stick out like a handle? No, real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Oh, does it hurt, said the rabbit? Sometimes said the skin horse, sometimes. Because when you, but, but when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Well, well does it happen all at once, like being wound up, or, or, or bit by bit? No, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become real. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easy or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose joints and you become very shabby. See, friends, in order for there to be real love, you must be vulnerable to endure real trials and real tragedies. But Mark is trying to demonstrate in this passage that it's not the tragedy that we expect it to be. See, the unexpected tragedy, in fact, the tragedy is not what happened in John's life, but what happened in Herod's. In Herod's. 
See, all through Mark and really all through the Bible, we read of events that are difficult at times to swallow. And if we're being truthful, there are some passages in Scripture that are even offensive to us, that are offensive to our culture. And what society tends to do when they come across bits of the Bible that are difficult to chew and digest, uh, they simply just dismiss it. And they say, how can you believe in such a document that is so offensive and antiquated? We're beyond all of that, don't you see? But see, the fact that it is offensive is a testament to its authenticity because the Bible is inspired not from any culture or kingdom of this earth, but it is inspired from a kingdom culture of heaven, which means at some point every culture here will find something difficult to have to face in the word of God. Every culture. For example, in American culture, when, when it comes to what the Bible has to say about sex, they're offended because they say, that's too strict. That's too narrow. It offends me. And in the Muslim culture, they too are offended by our Bible, but, because they, but it's because they say it's not strict enough. See? And so it begs the question, why do you feel your culture is more superior than others? And here we go right back again pointing to an absolute, which is exactly what a pluralistic society is trying to escape from but can't. And in the midst of trying to navigate through life, the Bible gives us real answers and speaks into real situations. Because let's face it, the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, they have real situations that they are facing, real things. They have real sicknesses that they are battling and real concerns for their children, real courses that they're trying to pass, real marriages that they're trying to keep above water, real families to support, real circumstances to face, real stuff, real stuff, real questions that weigh on the heart, real things. Look at three people say, I'm dealing with some real things, real things. I don't know what you're dealing with, but I'm dealing with some real things. And in the midst of all this, it is natural for doubt to emerge. It's natural for doubt to emerge. And what Mark is showing us here is, is what doubt does to you, what we should do with our doubts, and how we get the power to do it. What doubt does to you, can I get a tissue? My eyes water up. What doubt does to you, thank you, what you should do with your doubt, and how you get the power to do it. Praise God. So look at this. Verse 20 is fascinating. Fascinating. Because verse 20 uh, says this, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and yet he listened to him. And so, he, and this is crazy. So here we have Herod, um, who's, who, who is married his niece, which insults uh, the Christian community, but there's only one person brave enough to say anything about it, and that's John the Baptist. So he speaks up, and when John speaks up, then Herod's wife gets offended. She gets upset and wants to kill him, but she can't. She can't. Because Herod likes to listen to John. And so Herod will take John out of prison and have John preach to him. 
Can you imagine that? He'll say, he'll say, here, John, come stand right here, preach to me, and tell me everything I'm doing wrong. And he'll listen. And he'll be offended and puzzled and intrigued and like him all at the same time. He'll put him back, bring him out again. And it's this constant cycle, you see, puzzled, puzzled by him. Now, for those of you that are here that are reading your Greek translations, you'll immediately be able to identify the fact that that word puzzle is an interesting word. It's an interesting word because the word there is oporeia, oporeia. Now, Perea meant to um, to like get on a to, to try to decide if you want to get on a road uh, to, to to take a journey. It it, it meant to um, to to. To not even just to get on the road, but almost you're almost fearful to get on the road. You're, you're trying to decide, do I get on the road or, or do I not get on the road? Do I start this journey or, or do I not? But operea meant to waver at a crossroad. To waver at a crossroad. Uh, uh, in other words, it, it meant to have this thing inside of you that you're, not just, you're just not sure what to do. And this is exactly what was happening to Herod. He was being pulled. He was being uh, divided, if you will. He, he, he was being attracted and, and yet repulsed. Uh, he, he wanted to get on the same path as John, but he was skeptical. He, he wasn't sure what decision to make. And, and, and that word in Greek really brings out the concept of doubt, of doubt. It's almost like getting on a treadmill, which I don't have much experience in. And, uh, you know, when the treadmill's going and you try to jump on, y'all ever try to do that? Right? And, and, and for a moment, you're not really on or off. You know, you're just kind of teetering. You're kind of trying to grab your balance. And, and at one point, you either have to speed up so you can stay on or the thing's going to throw you off, right? And, and, and in many ways, this is kind of what it is. You're, you're, if you were in that moment, it, you'd be in a moment of doubt. Try, you're, you're, you're teetering. You know, you're, you're trying to figure out what to do. That's what doubt is. It's almost a spiritual vertigo, if you will. And you can have this both outside of the Christian faith, and listen up, and inside the Christian faith. Y'all hear what I said? Outside the Christian faith and inside of the Christian faith, right? Because watch this, in Mark 9, which we'll get to in a few weeks later on in the series, but there's a place where a father goes to Jesus and says, hey, can you heal my son, please? And Jesus says, yeah, as long as you believe. Do you believe? And he says, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Remember that? I believe, but help my unbelief. He says, I believe, and I don't believe. You know, I, I, I do. I mean, I do and I don't, right? There's a doubt there. Yeah, I, I think you can do it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you could do it. Yeah, I think so. Maybe. Kind of. No, yeah, yep, for sure. 100%. Yeah, well, maybe. Kind of. Right? And this happens, but not just to somebody outside of the faith, but inside of the faith. Because in Psalm 73, there's a man who was saved, but because of the terrible suffering that he experienced, it drove him to the edge, and he felt like he lost his balance. In fact, he says that my feet almost slipped. Y'all ever went like ice skating, 
right? And you're gliding along and everything's good. And I don't know, something happens. Maybe you try to get fancy with it or ever be extra. I don't know what the deal is. But something happens and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're going like this and, and you don't want to fall. And, you're, and so you start getting into all these weird positions, right? Because you don't want to make sure that you're not going to fall. And you just, you, you're kind of, you're teetering. And, 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 and this, is, this is this picture of doubt. This picture of doubt, you see. Because in that moment, you're trying to figure out how to have stability. And this is where I believe many people in this room and in our society are today. They're trying to figure out how to have healthy stability in their life. And so you believe, right? But, but, but also somewhere, if you're honest, if you're honest, if you're honest, even though you're a good Christian and you love the Lord and praise Jesus and you show up to every connect group and you go to all the prayer meetings and, and, and you know, you eat all the donuts and you just, I mean, you're everything, you know, praise the Lord. You're a good Christian, but, but, but somewhere inside, in the back, there's just this little, little thing of, of doubt. This little, if you're honest, there's this little thing of, of doubt, you see. And, and, and because church has become a culture of masks and Maybelline, we, we have doubts uh, in here that, that we cannot bring out because we're scared that we will then be judged as less holy or, 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 or less faithful um, or less righteous. And so we, we, kind of, we kind of keep those doubts inside. But the reality is everybody in here has doubt at some level. Everybody in here has doubt at some level. I don't care if your Bible is highlighted with every color in the rainbow and then some. And if you have little post-it sticky notes sticking out all over it, listen, it does not matter. You have doubt as well. And this will unfold as the message progresses. You have doubt. You have doubt. If you think, no, I've never had doubt in my life, well, probably because you haven't had teenagers yet. <laughs> right? Because listen, listen to this, the triumph of my faith that I have in Jesus is not that it is doubt-free. That's not what makes my faith triumphant. But the triumph of my faith in Jesus is that even in the darkest moments of my life, faith shines. Faith shines. So my faith can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my faith doesn't say you will never go through valleys. It will say you will. But what my faith says is that I will not die in the valley, you see. I won't die there. It's an even though kind of faith. Even though kind of faith. Go ahead and throw us in the fire, King Nebuchadnezzar. My God can save us. But even if he doesn't, he is still God and I will not bow my knee to you. It's an even though kind of a faith, you see. It's an even though. The fact is you all have doubts, but write this down. Don't let your doubts become your dead end. Don't let your doubts become your dead end. How? How do we do that? Well, see, in this passage, Herod has a small window of opportunity, and he didn't take it. You need to understand that your doubt is a window of opportunity. Doubt isn't a bad thing. See, if, if, if you were falling off a cliff, and you know that by the time you at the bottom of this cliff, you're dead, you're going to start grabbing onto anything you can. And if you even see a small little twig of a branch, right, it doesn't matter, you're going to grab onto that twig of a branch with all of your might. Even if you're not 100% sure that the branch will hold up, right? Even if you're not sure. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe, maybe you're 10% sure. Maybe you're 10% confident 
that, that this branch is going to work. You grab the branch, and the branch saves you. Well, watch this. Just because you were 10% confident in the branch doesn't mean that you're only 10% saved. No, you're 100% saved. The branch saved you. You're 100% saved, even though you had 10% confidence in it. And see, this is why most people, especially religious people, don't understand how faith and doubt can coincide. They say, no, 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 you can't have faith and doubt. It has to be one or the other. But let me tell you, friend, they can coincide. On one hand, you can be saying, yes, Lord, I believe you love me. I believe you can do it. I believe you're there. And the next day, you're not so sure. You don't know if he's hearing you. You don't know if he's mad at you. You're just trying to figure it out. And then the other day, you're confident. You feel like you're just walking on a cloud. And you feel all spiritual and everything. And you're at home with your tambourine and running around your living room. And, and, and then the next day, you're depressed and you're sad. And you think God's forgotten about you. I mean, you know what I'm saying I mean just just faith and doubt coinciding coinciding you see and people don't get it because they don't understand grace see they think that it's the quality of their faith that brings God's salvation but write this down it's the quality it's not the quality of your faith that saves you but it's the object of your faith it's not the quality of your faith that saves you but it's the object of your faith it's Jesus and you are going to be messed up. You're going to be so screwed up in life if you do not understand the distinction. Because if you don't see how doubt can be an opportunity, then you are going to miss it. And here's why. Because doubt will cause you to look at the true foundations of your life. It'll cause you to look at the true foundations of your life. What do you mean? Well, look at Herod. What brought Herod into this episode of struggling with doubts? It was his fear of John. Notice that? It says he feared him. What does that mean? It, it doesn't mean he was scared of him, but it meant to be fueled with a sort of awe and wonder and respect for him. Because here is the only man in all of Herod's kingdom that would not allow his anxiety to stop him from confronting Herod and speaking truth. Here is a man with conviction and integrity, and Herod kept bringing John out of prison so, he could, so John could tell him how wrong he was. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? And what that did was it forced Herod to evaluate his own worldview. What was Herod's worldview? Well, it's the same as all of the Herodian leaders before him. Power. Power. It was all power. It was all power. Because his worldview, when you think about all the things he did to have to get power, you almost wonder, how did he even sleep at night? Well, it, it's because of his worldview. Just like every le leader who was ever before him and, and, and every leader that seems to creep up uh, in ancient times and today who craves power, it's the same thing. And their worldview goes something like this. Everybody's out for themselves. That's their worldview. They think everyone's out for themselves. Everyone's wanting to get a leg up. And sure, there are some people that say they're good and they're kind and they think about others. But, but that's only because they're, 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 they themselves are trying to get a leg up. They, they themselves are, are trying to gain some sort of power from it. And so since everyone's out for themselves, I'm going to get to you before you get to me. I'm going to get to the top before you get to the top. That's this, that's this mentality. But then here comes John the Baptist. And if Herod's worldview is correct then someone like John shouldn't exist. And that's his problem. That's his problem. Because he does. He's standing in front of him in chains, you see. 
And this drove Herod crazy. It must have drove him crazy. Because, because Herod is like, what is, what, what's this guy's angle? What, what is he getting out of this? What's he getting out of this? And he discovers he's not getting anything out of it at all. That this man is giving up his life for something that must be true. And Herod was facing something difficult. And doubt will always do that to you. Doubt will always do that to you. You know why? Here's why. Uh, George McDowell, a Scottish writer, he says this. Everything difficult indicates something more than your theory of life yet embraces. Everything difficult, everything difficult indicates something more than your theory of life yet embraces. What does it mean? It means this, that whenever you face something that is hard for you to face, something that you say is difficult, the reason it's difficult is because something has come into your life that your existing theory of life isn't adequate for. It can't deal with reality. It isn't able to handle what the skin horse is talking about to the velveteen rabbit. And some of you have wasted years of your life standing at the crossroads, never knowing what it's actually like to be real. And you're living with shoulda, woulda, coulda. And, and, and you're living with, I wonder if I would have done that. And I wonder if I, if I could have did this. And I wonder if I would have been o a, a, a obedient then. And I wonder if I would have said yes to this and, and no to that. But, but listen, I refuse to die in a bed of if I had only. I don't know about you, church, but God gives you windows of opportunity. And you must take them. And when you don't, that's the real tragedy. That's the real tragedy. See? Is there anything right now that you know you ought to be doing and you keep putting it off and putting it off and should I, shouldn't I? Do I go all in? Do I not go all in? Do I finally forgive or do I not? Do, do I finally stop allowing other people's opinions to dictate my destiny or not? Do I allow fear and uncertainty and insecurity to control me or not? There's even some things here at Inspire that we offer that causes you to do this. Do I go on this mission trip and make a difference or not? Right? Well, do I become a member or not? Am I in or am I out? Whatever it is, listen, don't allow your doubts to be your dead ends. Because if you allow your doubts to be your dead ends, then you have missed the value of what it is to doubt. You have missed the value. Catch this. I, you're hearing this in church. You have missed the value of what it is to doubt. You've missed it. You missed it. Well, how do you do it? How do you balance doubt and faith correctly? By realizing that faith is not the absence of doubt, but the moving forward in the face of it. Faith is not the absence of doubt, but the moving forward in the face of it. And, and, and really how you do this is you get rid of the false idol in your life. Whew. What do you mean, Pastor? I don't have a false idol. You're about to find out. About to find out. Because let me tell you, when I'm writing this message out, like, hit me. Right? Mm -hmm. Watch. Watch this. See, Herod's fear, his real fear was to lose power. Herod knew that if he admitted that John was right then his worldview would have to change, which means his concept of power would have to change. In other words, his idea of that he needs to be in control would have to change. How he lived, who he married, who he didn't marry had to change. How he treated people would have to change. How he climbed the ladder of success would have to change. The whole ladder itself would have to change. 
He knew it. The reason most of you are wavering, the reason most of you haven't fully leaned in is because there's something in your life that you're holding on to that's more precious, that has more priority than Christ himself. Maybe it's reputation, maybe it's materialism, maybe it's desire to control your own destiny, or maybe it's something that's very, very good. Maybe it's something that's very good. Maybe it's just wanting to be a good parent or, or a good spouse or a good student or a good employee. But you have placed that in greater priority than following Christ himself. Because it isn't just wanting bad stuff. Know this. Sin isn't just wanting bad stuff. It's wanting good stuff badly. Sin just isn't wanting bad stuff. It's wanting good stuff badly. As I get ready to come to a close and conclude this message, the last thing you must do to understand what we're talking about here is that John the Baptist was willing to die for truth. But truth wasn't a something. It was a someone. It was a someone. Someone who, who would pay the ultimate price for sin. Someone who would be the ransom. Someone. It was a someone that would die so we can know truth. Beck and I, not long ago, we went up to uh, the wine country part. What's that place? What's that? Napa? We went to Napa. And up there, they have, maybe you guys have been, they have like this wildlife reserve. Have you guys been there? And, oh, it's dope. And you, you pay to go on these safaris. And you see like all these African wildlife. It's amazing. Giraffes and everything. And the giraffe head like comes in. And it's just, it's, it's cool. It's really neat. And, uh, and you can even, like, you can even, like, sleep there. You can, you can rent, like, these luxurious cabins, and there'll be, like, you know, giraffes and stuff out your window and zebras and stuff. It's, it's crazy. We didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but if that's your thing, you know, you could. You know what I mean? But <laughs> But what's crazy is, so, so the guy's driving us around in, in you know, those safari jeep things, and, and, and he's telling us about all the animals, you know, the, 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 all, the, all the beasts and everything that's there. And, and as we're driving, he's like, oh, yeah, this one's known to kill more humans than da-da-da. And we're just like, okay, thank you. It's like three feet away from us, you know. And then we drive, and there's an ostrich literally pecking, like, at our seatbelt and stuff, you know. And, um, and, all this, and we come up to zebras, right? And, and zebras are cool. And one thing, one thing he begins to explain that, that I thought was really neat that I did not know was that when a, a zebra uh, has a baby, you guys know this? That the, the mom will take the baby away from the herd and will spend intimate time with the baby. Do you guys know that? And, and here's why. This is what's so interesting. Here's why. Because, because all zebras, they, they all have stripes, but they all don't have the same kind of stripes. Their stripes are, are kind of like our fingerprints, right? And, 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 so the, and so the mother zebra will spend time of intimacy with her baby so, so her baby can memorize the configuration of stripes on her face. So when, the, so when the baby finally joins the herd, he won't confuse all of those stripes for the one who actually loves him the most. So he won't get confused on who his mother actually is, you see. The psalmist talks about seeking the face of God. The psalmist says, God, do not hide your face from me. Are you spending intimate time with the king of your heart? 
Can you say that you have such a close relationship with Christ that, and you, that you come to recognize him, that when you leave this place and go out there where there's a whole lot of other people trying to claim their authority over your life, trying to name you something different than you've already been named, trying to lead you in a different direction than what God has already placed your foot? Do you have such an intimate thing that you can know that, that, even, that, that even the opportunity to be deceived or detoured or delayed is not there because you have placed Christ correctly as a priority in your life. Because watch this, at the center of everyone's life is some sort of savior. At the very center of everyone's life is some sort of savior. Whether you're religious or not, whether you look at it that way or not, there is something that every person is building their life on, building their self-worth on, building their significance on, their deepest hopes on. It could be your career. It could be your family. It could be your looks. It could be your intelligence. It could be your talent. It could be the cause that you're involved in. But everybody looks at something to be real, to bring, give you meaning in life. And whatever that thing is, you're a slave to. Whatever that is, you're a slave to. See, Herodias, Herod's wife, knew that what Herod really feared was the loss of face before powerful men. And because of that, he was a pawn. And if you have anything else other than the love of Jesus Christ as your source of self-worth or the center of what you build your life on, then you are a pawn as well. And that is the unexpected tragedy. That's the unexpected tragedy. But look at John the Baptist. As the worship team comes up and we get ready to respond by worshiping in song, Look at John the Baptist. He had built his life on the fear of God. And because of that, he didn't fear anything else. He built his life on the fear of God. And because of that, he did not fear anything else. He did the right thing at the very cost of his life. But Herod couldn't even do the right thing at the cost of being embarrassed at a cocktail party. Because, listen, here's why, here's why. Because Herod did not know what his ultimate fear was. Do you? Do you? Friend, do you? Because when you are waving, when, when you are teetering between your, between what, uh, your, your central commitment to Jesus Christ and anything else, you have to know that you are teetering between real and unreal, between joy and fear, between freedom and slavery. And most of you are bound by the wrong kind of fear. And you have a choice to remain slave or to be free. Or to be free. Would you stand with me this morning as we get ready and we're just going to take a moment to respond to God. To respond to God. To respond to the very king of your heart. 
to come to a place where we have to really ask ourselves, what, what am I really building my life on? What am I really leaning on? What am I really depending on? Is it, is it the career? Is it the paycheck that I'm trying to get? Is it the life? Is it, be, is it being a, a parent and trying to raise these kids? Is it trying to pass these courses? I mean, what am I really building my life on? What, what is it that if I don't have, I don't know what to do? What is it? See, as much as I love my wife and I love my wife, and as much as she loves me and she loves me, the reality is, is if it so pleased the Lord that he would call one of us home this very afternoon, don't get me wrong, my life would be dramatically changed and I would be in so much sorrow, but I ultimately would not be destroyed because my life is not built on her and her life is not built on me. I love my kids with all my heart, but my life is not built on them, and their life is not built on me. One day they're going to grow up, they're going to move out, they're going to leave, hopefully. <laughs> That's why we try having them young, praise God. What is it built on? What is, what is it that you're scared of? Reputation? I, I don't know. What, what is it? What is it? Are you scared that, that listen, if I, if I follow God fully, then, then my life won't be fun? I mean, I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, there, there's something there that keeps you from just going 100. And you're a pawn. And what Jesus Christ is offering you this morning is freedom. Is freedom. Lord, we just praise you right now, God, and we just lift your name up, Heavenly Father, because God, beside you, there is no other. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that any time, any time, any time and every time that I have ever placed anything above you, anything over you, anything and every time that I have ever placed something in more priority than you, God, I'm asking God, for forgiveness I am so sorry Lord Heavenly Father my life let it be built upon you Lord God let me fear you so I fear nothing else God Heavenly Father let me find freedom in the very love that you offer Heavenly Father I thank you Lord God because you are worthy to be praised I thank you God because you look out for us, Heavenly Father. I thank you, God, because you call out to us, God. And Heavenly Father, there is not a place that is too deep. There is not a place that is too dark that you cannot reach. There is not a place too far that your love cannot go. There is not a person too broken that your love cannot restore, Heavenly Father. There is not a place or a person, Heavenly Father, that, that is too hurt, Lord God, that your grace cannot find. And Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, my King and my Savior. Help us, God, that as we go through the rest of this week and through the rest of our lives, Lord God, to keep you center, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspired Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspired Churches through Instagram at Inspired Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspired Churches. 
To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.